but that's a big thing. People get really nervous before the race. And getting to that part of it is it just matters to you, right? That's what that means. Like it really matters to you, but it's also a very normal evolutionary response to competition. Even if you're competing against yourself, it's a very normal response. So you have to kind of acknowledge that and try to set it aside. Say, okay, all right, yeah, I'm nervous for a reason. That's how my body's kind of programmed to react to this. Friday. This is Ali. This is Anne. Welcome back to another show. Welcome, welcome. How's it going? I'm tired. <laughs> tired on this Thursday morning, I January twentieth. We're really pushing the envelope here. <laughs> I know, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> uh, hey! Incredible weekend in women's running. A little bit about that. Yes, with pleasure. Uh, so we have two new American records, one in the marathon and one in the half marathon. So Kira D'Amato ran a 219.12, which um, beat Dina Castor's American record that she held since 2006. And um, I don't know if anyone knows like the whole story of Kira's story. It's pretty amazing. I've been reading up a lot about her, and I listened to her, a podcast with her yesterday. Um you know, just a little summation. She ran competitively when she was younger. She ran at American University, and then she took like a decade off. And um, she describes herself as someone who was on the sidelines and was, you know, cheering for other people, but always had this kind of wondered if she could. And she got back to running a few years ago. And, you know, the timing was interesting. She she ran really well at the um, Olympic trials in Houston. And then you know, COVID happened and they had the marathon project where she ran really well and she just kept plugging away. The episode I listened to was really good. It was <clears throat> the Sidious Magazine podcast. And she mm -hmm. talked a little bit about like not going for the major marathons and just, you know, she chose Houston for a reason. Yeah, she's incredible. She has, I think it's two kids and they were, her whole family was there and she was talking about all the signs they made and it's pretty incredible, you know. Um, so if that's not inspiring, I don't know what is. And before we get to the half marathon record, we have a few podcast, Chill Track Friday podcast guests who ran amazing races at Houston as well. Anna Johnson, who we just had on a couple of weeks ago, ran a 241, which is a pretty big PR for her. And um, I think her previous PR was 243. And Roberta Groner ran a 232, which is amazing, totally amazing. And I know she had had some injury issues last year and wasn't able to perform consistently and then came back and ran a 232, which is incredible. And then we can switch over to the half marathon, which was similarly exciting. Sarah Hall um, ran a 67.15, which beat out Molly Huddle's 67.25 that she set in 2018, I think on the same course. Um, so... And she'd been working for a really long time for that. And so now she and her husband both hold the American record in the half marathon. And I think his is from Houston as well. So seems like that's the place to go. <laughs> I know. I know exactly. Like through and through, it just, you know, it goes to show you just don't know when the perfect day is going to happen on what course it's going to happen. Yeah. The one thing that I think so much about in all of these stories these as well as ones we've been hearing about for as long as we've been fans of running is that it's running is the long game. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we're going to actually, I think this is a perfect conversation to sort of segue into our episode, which is, you know, you, you don't know when you do the work and you don't actually know when it's all going to come together, but you show up every workout as best you can, but you also have to be very balanced. What happened with Sarah, which I was reading about is that she was feeling very frustrated because she'd been working so hard and was doing so well. And then she wasn't really hitting sometimes. And she decided to back off the American record goal. And when we speak about one of our questions, I think that that is such a powerful tool from a mental perspective to kind of ease up on holding the steering wheel so tightly. And it allowed, it allowed her to go into it a little bit more relaxed and look at what she did. <laughs> that is, that's pretty amazing. Thanks for sharing that. I did not know that. That says so much in like taking, sometimes you have to, what, what how does the saying go? You have to step back to mm -hmm. go two steps forward. Uh, in this case, um, she had to really kind of let go of that to actually go grab it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really amazing because we tend to, if you become so singularly focused, then it's results oriented and not the process. And I think that, yeah. 
if we've learned anything, it's about getting out of your own way, really. Yeah. Speaking of that, we are doing our episode uh, slightly differently. No guests. We are your guests, guys. So we're stuck with us for the whole however many minutes this is going to take. We asked a whole bunch of you if you had any any questions you wanted us to answer. And a whole, you know, some of you wrote to us. And so we have a list of questions that we're going to go through and just knock them out one by one. Some of them might take an hour. Some of them might take 30 seconds. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's not going to be either of those extremes. But um, yeah, what's the first one? Let's start with that. Yeah, this is a great question. They're all great questions, so I'm probably going to say that with each one. How much time should be allotted to stretching both before and after a workout? Great question. Very good question. Do you yeah. want to go first? I can go first. So first and foremost, I the, it's, the question is specifically about how much time should be allotted. I'm also going to talk about the types of stretching there are, right? Like there is static and dynamic. Static is usually when you're in place and kind of stretching a very specific muscle group dynamics kind of stretching things while in motion i'm a huge fan of dynamic versus static <laughs> i've read that the science behind it is also you know kind of uh, suggests that you should be doing dynamic stretching more than static i personally just feel better when i do mm -hmm. dynamic stretching um, static doesn't really do much for me in terms of how much time you should be um, spending when it comes to stretching, I think it, it depends on a few factors. If it's a cold day outside and depends on how much running you're actually going to do, you would probably want to put in more time depending on the conditions. And usually you want to probably do some form of, and you know, even slow jogging and doing your drills and strides, that is dynamic stretching, mm -hmm. right? Like the, the butt kicks, the high knees, all of those things that we do, that is actually dynamic stretching. In kind of accumulation of that you know all of those things that you might want to do in dynamic stretching i would say you want to spend anywhere from at least like eight to ten minutes um, before um, you want to get into your running maybe in summer days you can get away with less or even just you know hit the ground running when it comes to after running i'm pretty guilty of that i usually end up at a coffee shop or <laughs> or a food place and just don't do anything at all. But when I have done is usually kind of as soon as I'm done running and I'm like kind of walking, I kind of take stock of like which parts feel tighter compared to, you know, just other parts of my body. So I would spend about five to 10 minutes again after running in on, on focusing those specific parts. So it's very, I, I would suggest making it methodical depending on the conditions, depending on how much running you have done. And you kind of adjust based on that, what it is that you're going to do and how long you're going to mm -hmm. do it for. Right. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with everything that you've said. I think that the science has changed. Well, not the science, the philosophy has changed a little bit that people used to recommend the static before running, but that always felt a little dangerous to me. If I can offer one tip in terms of stretch the dynamic stretching before a workout, something that I've done is I've weaved it into my workout basically so that it becomes a habit. So what I do when I'm doing a track workout, I do more dynamic warmups than I might do if I'm going out for an easy run. And so what I've done is I've incorporated it within a certain number of laps of the track. That way I'm not skimping and I know where I'm supposed to be doing what at what point of the track. So I end up with a two mile warm up and about three quarters of a mile of that is dynamic warm ups. And, you know, it does take time, but I think that if you change your mindset and consider it part of your workout, it's a little bit easier to do it. And for, and I loved what you said about taking into account the conditions right now I'm training I'm doing like 200s on the outdoor track in 10 degree weather. So I'm going to take a lot more time doing my dynamic warmups. I'm not going to sit there and stretch because I'm going to freeze and maybe pull something. What you're doing with a dynamic stretch is you're isolating the muscles that you're using and kind of exaggerating the movement to warm it up in without the stress. And what I found is that, you know, you're just much more fluid. And then afterwards, I agree with you. It's very easy to get caught up in moving somewhere warm, especially in the winter time. I've found that just a quick touch the toes, cross the legs, sit on, you know, get the hip stretched a little bit, and then I come back to it later. And I've found that one helps the other. So I stretch, <laughs> you and I joke about like not being able to watch TV in peace, but that's when I stretch again. And it helps in the morning when I get up to then go do my dynamics before my workout. It just all kind of bleeds into itself. I've also started, and I think it's because I'm just getting old. <laughs> I stretch. I do actually some static stretching when I wake up in the morning. I'm not sure if it's static. I do like cat and cowl. I do some spinal 
movements to kind of wake up and uh, Mm -hmm. downward dog, stuff like that. The tightness is cumulative. So get to it before you start to feel tight. Another thing you can do on this, I think, I mean, this is just kind of (laughs) passing the question to someone else, but um, (laughs) if you are using someone for PT, right? Mm-hmm. And you have been using them for a while. Like, for example, you're going to custom performance. I'm going to use them because, you know, mm-hmm. um, we, we're familiar and we know them so well and they're awesome. And you've been working with them. Like, they can become really familiar with how, right, like what type of runner you are, where the tight spots are, what type of stretching will work for you for how long. You should ask them. Mm-hmm. After you work with them for a while, they can kind of give you really good tips on, like, what will work specific to you given given the type of runner you are. Okay, on to the next one. Before, we forgot our major disclaimer in the beginning, which is that we're not doctors. (laughs) We aren't um, psychologists, but we're going to do our best to give you sound advice in this episode. (laughs) Everything you hear from us, you know, if it's unclear, come back to us and we'll tell you who to blame. (laughs) Uh, Like where we heard it, that we're passing on the knowledge from. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I mean, you learn from experience. For, for sure. We have a lot Best of teacher. experience. <laughs> so speaking of winter, right? Like we're talking about winter. There's a question that says, how do we stay consistent in winter months with the weather we've been having, especially things like negative 17 degree yeah. temperatures? Yeah, that's a good question too. And I think obviously very relevant. My first instinct is get a buddy. Having an accountability partner makes it so much easier And even if you're not doing the same workout, just to meet up at the start, go do your workout, meet afterwards, you know, you can do your dynamic stretching together. And um, that's one tip. Another tip is to be a little bit flexible with your week. So what I've been doing is I'll look at what's on deck for the week and then I compare it to the weather and I figure out when I can most likely get the best out of the workout that I'm trying to get. So if I'm doing 12 200s on the track and one day is feels like negative 10 and the next is feels like 10, <laughs> I'm going to choose the feels like 10. Sometimes it's a whole week of the same weather and I think then you just have to dress appropriately. I do encourage you not to skip the workouts because I think that A, that interferes with your training, but also working out and going out in this stuff, in this kind of weather, it makes you tough. And consider your race, what your race goal is and where your race is. For instance, if you're training for a race that's coming up, let's say Boston in April, and you're living on the East Coast and you're enduring what we're enduring, go outside because you don't know what race day is going to be like. It could very similarly be like 2018 again. And I was so grateful that I did all those runs outside. And then of course, the treadmill is a tool. I think that in my experience, I did not realize how great of a tool it is and how you can use it. So if you guys have individual coaches, ask your coaches how to use the treadmill. It's not the worst thing in the world. I'm going to do two by twos today on the treadmill and it's because it's, I could do it outside. It's actually warmer today, but it's about um, dialing into a certain pace at a certain, for a certain amount of time and not thinking about it. So yeah, get a buddy, do your best to dress properly and use the treadmill as a tool. Those are my mm-hmm. tips. I'm trying to think what else to add to that. Yeah, first and foremost, I, from what I hear from your answer, and th- those are those would be all of my tips as well. I will add to that is that be flexible and have a variety of tools at your disposal to kind of play around with so that if the conditions are not right, I think before anything else, you should consider safety, right? Like there mm-hmm. will be times when the conditions are so bad that you can't even just do a run outside, right? It's just covered in ice everywhere. We've had those days in those days, like having having the treadmill option is really uh, key. Uh, you can even make all sorts of games for yourself on treadmill. I know a lot of us don't like being on the treadmill. Uh, the you know, type A runner types who love being outside. Have that option so that you're inside and doing it safe. Having the buddy, like you said, is like a that's a big, big motivator. Having a group to go to is a mm-hmm. big, big motivator. We know how great Hill Track Club always shows up and mo- a lot of the groups that are out there that always show up no matter what the conditions are actually you know you once you have established that um you may have a bomb cyclone coming and you'd still want to get out there with your friends oh yeah so this is not a question but you touched on it so i'm going to ask you what are your tips for dressing appropriately once it gets like 20 and below Mm, yeah i definitely have temperature points at which i 
add things or take things away. Above 32 degrees, I usually just wear insulated tights, a long sleeve, a short sleeve, a thin jacket, neck gaiter, hat, and gloves. If it's below 32, (laughs) you and I joke about this, you gave me this amazing shirt which is Under Armour. It's for their cold weather gear and it's compression too. And it has a neck gaiter and it also has a baklava. So I don't actually, I've never actually ran with the baklava, but the neck thing is warm and I put another um, buff on me, but that is for cold, cold weather. And then I put also a long sleeve over that. And at that point I use a jacket that's a little bit heavier. Like the Adidas ones are usually have a lining in them that's mesh. And that does create another insulation that I found. And then I'll double up my gloves. I usually, if I have them, I'll use hand and foot warmers. And then always hat, keep the ears warm. I pull my buff up sometimes over my nose if it's windy. I also recently, because I'm doing really fast repeats on the track outside, I'm doubling up my tights because I don't want to pull a hamstring. Um, Did you say baklava? (laughs) The Turkish dessert? (laughs) I always run with baklava in my pockets. That's the part. But to be fair, I have always messed up those two words myself, the balaclava and baklava. I always thought the baker who invented baklava also made balaclava. Maybe it's supposed to. The first time I heard it, I was like, what? The sweet thing you're saying it wrong. So embarrassed. No, 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 no worries. It's okay. I, I have literally done that before and I didn't even know I was saying the wrong thing. Well, what's funny is while I was trying to pronounce it, I was thinking how I've heard you say it. Um, but keep the extremities warm. <laughs> Pro tip, run with Turkish sweets. Um, <laughs> you touched on Boston mm-hmm. in that, like, for example, people are training for Boston. So there's a question there that says, I want to qualify for Boston and I'm running a spring marathon. Do I train for the time I need? That's kind of a, that's a loaded question. So <laughs> go for it. Yeah, I'll start and then please add. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of when I want to sit down with a runner and just start from the beginning because we always have to start where we are and we see the Boston qualification as where we want to be. And so what are the steps we need to take to get from here to there? And for some people, it's one training cycle. For other people, it's five years, 10 years. Um, So again, this is sort of the long game. But when you're sitting down, Boston 12-week training starts next week. When you're sitting down this weekend to find your plan, if you don't have a coach and you're doing one online, try, (laughs) if you can go do a time trial this weekend. If you're running, if you're in New York City and you're running Fred LeBeau, go do it as a time trial. You need to find out where your fitness is right now, not where it was when you ran the New York City Marathon or where it was two years ago when you PR'd in the 10K. It's where you are today. And what that does is it gives you training paces which allow you to get the best out of yourself where you are today. And those times, the body naturally adapts over the course of your training cycle and you will get faster. You may end up racing your qualifying time, but you may not. But these are all stepping stones to get to the time that you need to qualify. But Mm -hmm. we must start where we are. Yep. Hashtag there are no shortcuts. (laughs) Seriously, there aren't. Yeah. So just add to that tip is don't don't ever try to force. I remember a while ago, I think this must have been 2018 when all of a sudden, I think it was even right before the cutoff date when people were going out to race to qualify for Boston, Boston dropped everything by five minutes, mm-hmm. right? They said, okay, every age group has to get five minutes faster. And there were people who were going to run a race a week from then right? And we're trying to Boston qualify. So they were like, well, okay, I guess I have to try and run five minutes faster. Like, no, that's sorry to say that I don't know how perfect of conditions need to be for you to almost take away five minutes from what you have actually trained for. Yeah. Um, It's, you know, it just doesn't work that way. You'll actually blow up your race. So it's much smarter to say, okay, I'm going to race what I've trained for and see where I land. There is a chance that maybe in my training I miscalculated and I do get very close and most likely not, but it could happen. But the smarter thing would be is to say, this is where I am, like you said, and use that as a stepping stone for for the next race to uh, try and Boston qualify. 
Yeah. Because overreaching can end up really backfiring and you can have a worse race than you would have had. Mm-hmm. Again, and not to oh, in, get injured and be out for a little while. You yeah. Know? yeah. Nobody wants that. We come back to this idea and we will keep touching upon it is that it really is the process. You have like you want to have the goal. You definitely want to have the goal. But when you step up to the starting line, it's really about how do I feel today? How can I get the most out of me today with what's given to me today? Because we never know, you know, what happens between the start line and the finish line. And that's what's so amazing about racing. It's just you go mm-hmm. get out of your own way. You've done the training. Go run. You pick a question. From okay. The well, I think we know what question I'm going to pick. <laughs> um, how many cups of coffee does it take on race morning to PR? That one made me laugh out loud. <laughs> I think it was a joke. However, uh-huh. it touches on something that is not a joke, which is that caffeine is a performance enhancer um, until it's not. <laughs> and then if it can do the opposite. Um, so <laughs> until it's not. What? Yeah. Yeah. Until it's not. That's funny. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Because if you're not used to caffeine and then you load up on caffeine on race day, you're probably going to have a stomach issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so... For those of you who don't drink coffee, you're probably in like a better situation because you can you can actually use it. Your body's not used to it, so you can use it. And if you are a caffeine drinker like myself, like I drink coffee before every workout. I just do. I drink a cup of coffee in the morning. Obviously, I have water too. And if I'm going for a long run, I, I, do, I did take the advice of our nutritionist guest, Lauren Antonucci, and I do have a banana. And um, so my body's used to that. So I don't really consider caffeine – a performance enhancer for me. <laughs> it's just like status quo. However, um, so I'm going to recommend a book that has like a lot of good information about this, which is Matt Fitzgerald, The New Rules of Marathon and Half Marathon Nutrition. And it's really interesting. And he talks a little bit about how much caffeine to take and when to take it before a race. And you don't want to just do it right away. You want to practice. And I do know that there's also this um, – process called depletion diet like that people do some people but mostly men because they are trying to deplete their glycogen stores to then fill them up Um, and one of them is fasting caffeine which essentially if you are a caffeine drinker it turns you into it just gets rid of all the caffeine that's in your body so that when you take it it does become a performance enhancer so I don't think I can attribute my coffee drinking to my PRs but I can attribute it to being in a good mood, <laughs> being happy, <laughs> enjoying um, life. <laughs> yeah. By the way, that book, The New Rules of Half Marathon and Marathon Nutrition by Matt Fitzgerald. If you want to really optimize nutrition for your racing, mm-hmm. it is really, really good. I highly recommend it. It's great. He has uh, a timeline of like what to do when mm-hmm. I always bring it out. I take it with me whenever I marathon. Yep. I have I have two pieces of paper. One has the macro timeline of the entire training cycle on when to do what. And then I have the the week of race, which is I call the micro timeline mm-hmm. once you get close to the race. And it even has like race morning stuff like, you know, stop eating at this point and this many um, it can get very technical in terms of like, oh, this many grams of this. I obviously don't do that. Yeah. I don't walk around with a scale. Um, <laughs> it would be hilarious, like just, uh, getting into the starting shoot in oh my, my corral and with a scale and measuring things. No, um, but it does. It it has it, it gives you gives you an example. Even though it might talk about this many grams of carbohydrate, it will tell you like, well, that's half a bagel, or it's mm-hmm. full bagel, or this much pasta, or whatever. Um, so it does help. But uh, when it, going back to the actual question of how many cups of coffee, this goes to show like people are different. Like I don't ever drink coffee before my runs. It runs <sighs> always after before my runs or, or uh, always comes after my runs and races. Ooh. I've never had um, coffee before any runs, any workouts, any races. <laughs> I think I beg to I usually differ. run. That's my motivation. I run to the coffee. I think I've forced like a sip on you while going on the subway in the morning. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's different. That's out of, you know, I was like, yeah, sure, of course. I'll be, you know, polite and not say no. That's okay. I wanted to add sort of a joke, but it's not a joke. It's real. I use his tips for nutrition on race day when I do long drives. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Say more about that. He talks about when to stop eating and drinking so that your stomach is not going to be upset or need to go to the bathroom. Like, I mean, most likely. 
So I do that so I don't have to stop that many times for to use the bathroom or get gas. <laughs> so yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Next um, up, I'll be getting goose while I'm driving. <laughs> if you want to drive like a champion, you got to feel like a champion. Okay. What are your favorite podcasts to listen to? Oh, I like that one. Um, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go through my list. I have so many. Chill Track Friday. What else? Oh, yeah. I got <laughs> That's like, oh my gosh. Okay. We have to share our little inside joke about the show Insecure. And I can't mm -hmm. remember, shoot, I can't remember um, Issa's friend's name, the one who's the marketer and she has a podcast. She said something ridiculous and Issa said, do you hear yourself? And her answer is, well, yes, I have a podcast. I hear myself every day. <laughs> This might be totally embarrassing. Okay, so I listened to, uh, well, this was one of your suggestions. Where Should We Begin? Esther Perel, which is mm -hmm. great. Um, Death, Sex, and Money with Anna Sale. Long Form, Run to the Top. A lot of these are running. Um, Sidious Magazine. And then I have like a lot of uh, dating and relationship podcasts that I listen to. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite in that one? Um, I listen to Matchmaker Maria, who is funny she just gives like the best advice and she's tough love uh dates and mates demona hoffman she writes for the she used to write for um the washington post and now i think she's out in california pod save america oh here's a really good one it's very technical but it's really good uh steve magnus um it's magnus and marcus on coaching and that is a really really it's a gold mine we'll get mm -hmm talk about him later um i have so many more good life project the week in art i listen to which is the art newspaper one freakonomics you told me about finding mastery you're wrong about have you heard wrong you're wrong about i know of it but i have not i have not listened to it someone else recommended that yeah, yeah it's great it's like they go through stories that we all think we know what happened and they kind of mm -hmm. dissect them and tell us where we're wrong and like what actually happened. Those are the ones that I listen to the most. I, what, I used to listen to a meditation one, but they stopped. Uh, and then there was like a really interesting one. Did you tell me about this one? The Grift? It was quite mm -hmm. short. It's about grifters. And it's just like this really interesting people who are on the make, you know. And then I have other ones mostly about like starting businesses, um, how we built this, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then from the top, which is interviewing like CEOs and stuff. How about you? What do you listen to? Yeah, cool. So my regular go-to at this probably is for many listeners as well is This American Life. I mm -hmm. almost never miss an episode. Even if it's a repeat, I've listened to it three times, which they do often, right? Um, so that's my regular always. I I think probably every other day I'll kind of tune in and they have, I don't know, I don't know what their episode count is, but all of it is good. Sometimes I'll just go back to like, something from early 2000s and listen to it. So This American Life is definitely on top of my list. I do have Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel. Housework with Esther Perel is also very, very interesting. Mm. Freakonomics. Mm. Um, no Stupid Questions, which is by the same people who make Freakonomics, but just a very, very different take. Running podcasts. I only have one, and that's Get Uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um that running podcast it's like using running as a force to force to change um and then two others on my list are uncivil and resistance nice i have other podcasts that are like series that people probably know mm. s town is a series on a very specific story almost the same people who produce serial so that that's my list i don't have any others the one i was like obsessed with during the last administration was pod save america because it was like the only i've just felt like oh at least there's people com like commentating on this that it wasn't funny but i laughed because they pointed out just how ridiculous and absurd things were and that no one was calling him out on stuff but i don't want to talk about this <laughs> <laughs> now i'm like okay i'll listen Hold to that one episode. next week <laughs> let's get a big one here oh Someone asked, mental strategies during racing and a brain emoji. Oh, this is my favorite topic of all. Go for it. Well, if we were if we were videoing this, you would see I have a stack of books 
on either side of me, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I've pulled off my shelf and I wish that I could go through my notes on all of them. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm first going to go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> do you mind if we just hold on for one second? Yeah, sure. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to, sorry, I'll be right back. <laughs> so that reminds me. How many cups of coffee does it take to answer a racing strategy question? I know. Well, I mean, there proves my point. It's like focus, concentration. (laughs) (laughs) That being my answer reminds me of in Bridget Jones when she's at Salman Rushdie's uh, book launch. She ends up in this Mm -hmm. complicated conversation and they're talking about stuff and they turn to her and they go, what do you think? And she goes, do you know where the loos are? And they just looked at her like, okay. Um, All right. So mental training, jokes aside, it is like my favorite topic. And um, I think that this is actually, thank you for asking this question. And this is something that we're really trying to steer into the podcast and kind of have more of these conversations because I think it's really important. Kipchoge always says we're not limited. And I I I believe he's talking from a mental perspective because I do believe Mm -hmm. that, you know, we have our genes and we can push as much as we can. And we, that's where the long game comes in, staying healthy so you can see the rewards and what your body can do. But so much of what happens in our races is already happening in our mind. So I would say from the beginning of your training program, start visualizing racing your race and feeling good and finishing. And don't worry about the time. It's not that you're visualizing a time on the clock. I mean, you can if you want, but it's really like, how do I want to feel mile 20 in a marathon? Visualize that. Visualize the whole thing. Start doing that in the beginning of your of your training cycle. So much of the mental game is the belief that you can do something. So you want to really flood your your brain with with belief that you can do something and that there's so much to talk about. So mm-hmm. like the biology, and I'm not a doctor, but I've read a lot about this and we've experienced, I'm sure you've experienced it yourself. Like the biology is that our brain tries to protect us when it thinks we're in danger. So when we're running and we're in distress, we're sending the body, sending signals to the brain that like, ah, and the brain is like, stop, stop, this hurts, slow down. So you want to kind of become friends with that dialogue so you can calm it down so that you your brain doesn't think that it needs to protect the body. So for instance, something that you can come back to is like, I'm running hard. This is supposed to hurt. Like normalize it, normalize it, keep normalizing it because they some people call it like the lizard brain or the monkey brain, the that part, that very primal reptilian part of the brain that just kind of freaks out. You want to get that under control and which philosopher said it? Like, master your mind or your mind will master you. It's really, I think, meditation. Like, I try to meditate. I'm not saying, what? Did he say that? <laughs> <clears throat> he says you have to rule your mind or it will rule you. Um, but I, I, I don't know if it's his own saying or if he's picked up from somewhere. Yeah. So there is a whole field of study in this. And it's like <clears throat> performance psychology, mm-hmm. sports psychology. And... um But I would say if you want to be working on this while you're training, there are some really good books out there. I would say like a really nice intro, which is super inspiring, is Dina Castor's book, Let Your Mind Run. That is amazing and just such a good – it's just so cool to learn about her and what she went through to get to um, Athens. So, you know, we already mentioned Matt Fitzgerald. He has a lot of really good books that are very helpful for mental training. One is The Comeback Quotient which I think was published last year. Then we have his How Bad Do You Want It?, which I like to counterbalance with Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Bleep. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that idea sort of of what Sarah Hall did, which is have your goal, but also like back, like relax off of it. I think that when we attach ourselves to an outcome, we become stressed and we become tense and Racing well requires allowing room for your body to do what you've trained it to do. So when you show up to the start line, it's really about getting out of your own way. Your body knows what it needs to do. You've practiced for at least 12 weeks doing all these things, and you want to give it the arena to just go and just go run free. 
So then Brad Stuhlberg is a great, great author. And I think he's a psychologist um, and an athlete himself. And he's written many books. Um, the Passion Paradox, which he wrote with Steve Magnus. Um, they're a great team. Peak Performance, another book of theirs. And then last year, Brad Stuhlberg published The Practice of Groundedness. These are all really, really, really helpful books. But I think the general theme is this idea of getting a handle over your brain and just trying to relax and visualizing success. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with doing that before and during a race? Or like during a training cycle, right before the race and during a race, let's take Boston 2018 because yeah. it had a lot of different other variables in it too, right? That can mess with your mind. Yep. Yeah. Um, sure. Now I feel like that was so long ago, but I do the mm -hmm. same things. Um, I would say so. <laughs> it's so interesting because it all kind of comes down to like the granular where you have to trust what you're doing and you have to trust your coach and you have to trust your training plan because if you're questioning everything, you're always going to have doubt. And if you show up mm -hmm. on the starting line with any kind of doubt that you didn't train well enough, I feel like you set yourself back. So start from the beginning and really take your time, whether you're choosing a coach or you're choosing a training plan, choose the time to choose one that's going to integrate into your life that you've spoken. If you do have a coach, speak with them about what your goals are and what you want to accomplish in the long term. And this, this goal race, my experience was trusting your plan. So I trusted my plan without having that doubt and knowing that I was prepared, I was able to show up and, you know, I mean, 2018 was like a freak show weather. So at that point, you know, I had my time goal in the back of my brain, but it was kind of out the door. And I think that that actually helped because there's so many things that are uncontrollable. So you want to control the controllables. So success is like, I feel like ritual is important for me. I do the same thing before every race, which I also do before workouts so that my body just knows, it knows that this is performance time. So I think that that really helps having routines. Um, visualization, I definitely did a lot of visualizing before Boston. And I'd never run the course, so it wasn't that I was visualizing the course. It was visualizing the feeling of feeling good. And I think uh, reading a lot of positive information about performance so you really want to flood yourself with positive messages. Um, sometimes that means taking a little break from the news. I think the most about the morning of a race, and that's why I started with the idea of being confident in your training, because when I show up to a race, it's sort of like, okay, well, this is today. If the race was another day, I would be maybe feeling differently, but I am here today. And what can I do to get the most out of myself on this day? And you might feel terrible but you know what? If you look at it as the process, it, for me, it's always a process-oriented outcome, mm -hmm. not a time or a certain placement. It's just what, how can I run this as best as I can today, given the conditions mm -hmm. that I'm given, which is, and how I feel. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of babbling, but <clears throat> yeah, I hope no, that that's helps. fine. I because it's a very complicated topic, right? Mm -hmm. And it really depends on different personalities and I, I'll go through some of the thoughts and things that I do during the race mm -hmm. that have really helped me first of all I always break it down mm -hmm. into smaller chunks any longer any longish race right like 5k and above but even 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 shorter races I guess we get to a mile it just happens much faster but I usually would just stay in the mile for me it's always about it's about this mile we'll do a check at the end of that how we're feeling mm -hmm. and then we go into the next one. So for me, it's always, even if it starts to get harder, like, no, just let's just get to the next mile. Then it's almost like one check off, right? I'm a very uh, kind of playing to my own mental strength. Mm -hmm. So I know that having a checklist of things and crossing those things out for me really work well. I, I do that at my job. I'm constantly, you know, I do it for myself. I don't like force checklists on other people. They, you know, everybody's different and they, they do what works for them. But in my head, that's like such a satisfying thing. I'm always kind of, so I've used that in my racing. I've brought that out and, and something totally different might work for you. And you have to figure out how you can, how your brain operates and you can integrate that into your racing. But for me, breaking a something hard that I'm going to do into smaller chunks has always mm -hmm. worked for me. So for me, that has become a big thing um, during racing, even all the way till the end, right? Like when you get to the 20 miles of a marathon, you're like, okay, 
the race starts now. Like, okay, all right, I have six check marks left. I can I can get through this, right? It feels a lot less than 26. Like, you've come through this far, so you're there. That works really well for me. I generally, other racing strategies, I don't get that nervous before a race, for better or for worse. But that's a big thing. People get really nervous before the race. And getting to that, part of it is it just matters to you, right? That's what that means. Like, it really matters to you. But it's also a very normal evolutionary response Mm -hmm. to competition even if you're competing against yourself it's a very normal response so you have to kind of acknowledge that and try to set it aside say okay all right yeah i'm nervous for a reason that's how my body's kind of programmed to react to this i listened to an interview with dr stan beecham he wrote the book the elite mind right yeah it's amazing Um, and he he talks about how this is a this is from thousands of years of us being hunter gatherers right and potentially running away from prey and you know but that's what the competition was back then, right? Uh, from, uh, sorry, running away from predators. Not you were. <laughs> uh, so it. So that response is coming. That that primal brain that you talked about. That's where like the subconscious response is coming. You almost can't control that. Uh, the only thing is there is no threat, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? When you're going to the uh, when you're going to the starting line, there is no threat. Doctor Stan says so. Um, so it's like just acknowledging that it's coming from there and then saying, okay, actually there's, you know, uh, I'll get through this. I know I've done this before and then setting that aside and, you know, mm-hmm. trying to move on. And it, it, it goes back with what you said, understanding where it's coming from and then kind of trying to calm it down and say, okay, all right, let's move on from that. I think I, I agree with what you said about the process. That's very, for me, that's always been very important. Just getting to the starting line is like the icing on the cake for me. It's, for anything I've done, Again, I guess that's what favors me in terms of not being too nervous is because I really love getting into the process of things and how long it takes and why it takes that long and have to be patient with that. Um, So I I enjoy that a lot more, quite honestly, dare I say, than the race itself. Um, (laughs) So the race is like almost like just putting it to the test at the end and then I know the process is going to continue. That's just part of the journey. It's not going to end. Yeah, so it's... It's just another way of saying you're telling yourself stories that work towards mm-hmm. your mental strength um, to kind of bring everything together and under control. Yeah. I love hearing you talk about those things because it brings more up to mind. And we talk about this stuff all the time, like all the mm-hmm. race mornings. I think that it is so helpful what you said to understand like that the race day nerves are because you care. And there's like this fine line between when those kinds of nerves help your performance and when they become debilitating. And I've had the nerves that are debilitating. And by the time I actually got for like the week before a certain race, by the time I got there, I was so tired. So Mm -hmm. I think what I learned from that was not putting so much on one race. Again, like we've mentioned this a few times that it's all a stepping stone. And if you can just sort of like shake that anxiety out of your shoulders and your hands and your arms at the start line and just go there and turn the brain off. And then once you get going, one thing that helps me a lot is like so much can happen. Things change. If you're feeling really bad in one mile, just tell yourself things change, things change. It goes both ways too. So you enjoy when you feel good. And it's amazing how many things can turn around in a race and or stay the same. Like you could have one race that you just feel amazing the whole time. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the key is being an adaptable person. And I think resiliency is really key as well. Um, So think about all the times in your life that you've sort of been able to adapt to a challenge. Another thing that I do before races that is really good for mental um, performance is to go back and look at all the training that you did. I was so nervous for Fifth Avenue Mile. And then I went through my training log and I was like, I ran 18 miles at my race pace. Like, it's in there. <laughs> it's really easy to forget what you've been doing. Really, really good point. I've done that for almost almost all of my races. I've gone back to the training and specifically picked out like very some of my best workouts. That mm-hmm. that works really well. You look at it, you're like, okay, I did that and I did that. Oh wow, I did like this much and that was below race pace for this long. That really helps. Uh, There's also a really kind of fun book that Greg McMillan wrote. 
and it's called Surviving the Marathon Taper Freakout. <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's mm-hmm. so good. It's short. It's a quick read. Read it, Taper Week. It's really good. So our last question. I think it's about Taper. Oh. <laughs> oh, this is such a good question. Right. Is tapering for a big race really that important or a bit overrated? I'm terrible about that. Such a good question. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can I start? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> I'm on my second cup of coffee. I'm fired you up. You hit the buzzer first. <laughs> I know. It's like Jeopardy style. Okay. So the taper is really important. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. And I'll tell you why. So if you think about it from a macro level and a micro <clears throat> level, it's kind of the same. So within one week, you have hard workouts and you have easy days. And the easy days are so you recover from the hard workout so then you can show up to the next workout rested and ready to roll. Well, if you extrapolate and look at your whole training cycle within a year, it's the same thing. Um, So at the end of your training plan, you have stressed your body, you've had your peak week, and it is important to rest the, the thing, I think the question, the better question is how much should I taper? Not should I taper, it's how much. And I think that that depends on the person. Personally, I taper more because I know I need rest. You need to know your body um, and talk to your coach and it takes a little practice. But during the taper, you're dropping the volume, not the intensity. That's what the taper is. So it's not like you you do your peak week and then you sit on the couch and you eat bonbons and french fries. It's like that's not what happens. You, you're you resting. So that would be still be better to do that <laughs> than actually keep up the mileage and the intensity yeah. all the way to race day. <laughs> that's true. I know. And I but think yeah. the, the thing that gets tricky is this is when the nerves start to come in. And so I think – it's displaced. The nervousness is displaced onto the taper and like, oh, I should, I should be running. I should be running. But actually that's the time when you should be resting because you have, have all this damage to your like muscles and all those tendons and everything's inflamed and you've been, you know, adapting and you've gotten stronger. So what happens is that in stress plus rest is growth. So you've stressed your body. Now you need to rest it so it can repair and you can restore your glycogen levels And so that when you show up on race day, you are fresh, you've had some sleep and you've had lots of nutrition, you've had time with your family, you're you're spiritually feeling better, you know, marathon training, any kind of training, I'm doing mile training and it's just as exhausting, is depleting on every possible level. And so you are really restoring yourself so that you can perform. So I think the problem is when people don't taper, then they don't see the benefits of the taper. So then they will start to wonder if it's worth it. But I think that without tapering, you're not going to be able to see what you are actually possible of doing. That's my that's my mm-hmm. two cents on tapering. I've, I taper a long time and I find it really valuable. It's hard. I think mentally it's mm-hmm. hard because you get anxious, but it's so important. That, that's the biggest part, I think. The, it's the connection. Like our mind is us, right? It's it's everything. So mentally, if we can't, like if something's driving us crazy, which tapers do, it almost feels like, ah, should I be doing this? Like, um, But physiologically and physically mm-hmm. speaking, it is absolutely necessary for you to taper to perform in the race. I, I actually like the way the question is phrased. Is tapering for a big race really that important? Yes, it absolutely is. If that's your big race, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to, assume the word big means it's a goal race it's something that's really important to you yes you absolutely should because if there's a race in mid training cycle and it's not a big race you you can actually use it as like an all-out effort that becomes a stimulus as part of your training you don't have to taper for that that is perfectly fine but for your big race you do want to give it that time to basically refill all of your reserves and show up on race day with everything topped up mm-hmm. um, think of it as a as a as a drum full of fuel that mm. has been dripping away with each for, for let's say you have a 16 week training cycle for 13 weeks it has been literally been at a very low level because you have been continuously depleting it and your body is becoming really efficient 
working at those low levels. So you're constantly training at, you know, and, and constantly making your body adapt um, to that condition. And then all of a sudden you stop and that fuel drum, basically you have, you know, starts to fill back up. Right. And you, it's called peaking for a reason. You want that peaked all the way to the top, that fuel drum. So you can Mm -hmm. on race day actually push through and really perform at your, at your highest level. So you really want to do that. And I love your micro and macro examples. So in, in micro, if I gave you like four, four hundreds to do with a little bit of rest in between at, I don't know, your, whatever your hardest effort for 400 could be, if there's rest in between, you will perform. But if mm-hmm. I start taking away that rest and tell you, okay, now go ahead, do a 1200, three, four hundreds combined together, you won't be able to do it at that same time. Um, so that rest is actually letting you, even if it's like you're running 90 seconds and then taking a 60 second rest, that 60 second is for, for, for a race, you know, it's equivalent to those three weeks for that entire training cycle that you're tapering. Um, so you can look at it that way. So the answer is a resounding yes, you want to taper. Mm-hmm. It's not overrated. It's actually, you know, science. And it's different. It's different for everyone. So that that's what makes it tricky. Some people might get away with a two-week taper and that works for them. Mm-hmm. Some need three, some might need four. So yeah. the biggest disconnect is is that you have been pushing for however many weeks and all of a sudden you're told, okay, now we're going to lower all of that. And you you're gonna, you have to kind of, sit down and take it easy and mentally it's like uh you know you feel like you're not you're not doing enough that there is something else you could be doing and that's the perfect time to be working on your mental game i think the taper gets a bad rap but it's fantastic no more questions guys we may do this from time to time so please feel free to send us more questions and we will keep pulling them and from time to time we'll do an episode like this yeah might even bring on some of you to ask us questions yeah, definitely. You can ask us on our Instagram page or you can email us at chilltrackfriday at gmail.com. And our Instagram is chilltrackfriday. Easy to remember. Hope you enjoyed the show. See you in two weeks. See you.